You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. Thomas Jefferson. According to Jefferson, rebellion is justifiable and even necessary. Patriots must bleed and tyrants must die in the preservation of precious liberty. I wonder how many of us have to fight the urge to shout, Amen, when we hear a quote like that. After all, it's in our American blood to fight oppression, take what's ours, and forge our own destiny. So let me just say a few things here from the very outset, from the very beginning. I just want to clear the air, and I want to make a few things known before we approach our text. First of all, I want you to know that I love my country. I do. I love the United States. I come from a family of veterans. I grew up in the cornfields of Indiana. I literally spent most of my life at the crossroads of America. If I am called to war, I will go, gladly, because I love my, they probably won't ask, they probably wouldn't want me to go, but if they ever did, I'm there, because I love my country. I do, I love the United States. However, having said that, let me just go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off now by making what is probably going to be the most shocking statement of this entire series. So if you can hang with me for the next few minutes, I'm sure that we can make it through Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and and all the other passages that we have ahead of us in this series. So are you ready? Here it is. Here's Here's the most shocking statement probably of the whole thing. Here you go. The United States never has been and never will be a Christian nation. I hope you get that. The United States never has been and never will be a Christian nation. Yes, some of our founders were Christians. Yes, some of our founding principles are biblical. And yes, our small city alone has over 30 registered churches. But in the history of the world, there has never been a Christian nation. Having said that, though, we know as believers that the day is coming when we will have a Christian nation. One is on its way. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to rule and to reign on this earth with perfect justice and perfect equity, then and only then will we know what a Christian nation looks like. Until then, what are we? The Christians who live here. Well, the Bible calls us pilgrims, aliens, strangers, and exiles. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are called to live quiet and peaceful lives, submitting to whatever government we find ourselves under, because ultimately, we are citizens of heaven. Christian, let's not forget who we are and why we're here as we approach Romans 13 and all the other texts of this series. We are Americans, yes, but first and foremost, we are pilgrims, aliens, strangers, and exiles. If you are a Christian, this is who you are. So with that in mind, let's turn to Romans 13, starting 
with verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The central command of this section is found at the very beginning. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This imperative and this theme is seen all throughout the Bible, but it appears here in Romans 13 as a point of application for those who are in Christ and in who we are in Christ. The first 11 chapters are all about the gospel. They tell us how we are saved, why we are saved, and what salvation in Christ looks like. It's not until we reach chapter 12 where the impact of salvation comes into focus. You see, the gospel changes us. And as saved people, it changes all of our relationships as well. Chapter 12 begins with the right relationship with, with God himself. In light of your salvation, you should present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He then highlights a right relationship with other Christians in verses 3 through 16. After that, a right relationship with unbelievers, even enemies, in verses 17 through 21. And then finally, transitioning from that, we find ourselves right smack dab at the beginning of chapter 13. Verse 1, with a right relationship with government and authority. He's saying, here's how the gospel impacts your behavior as a temporary citizen of earth. And just because you have been called out of the kingdom of darkness doesn't mean that you can now break the laws that are still here with a clean conscience. If anything, our shift in priority should make us better subjects to the governments that God has placed us under, even the bad ones. So he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Who are those governing authorities? Well, specifically, who is Paul talking about here? The rest of the passage and, and other passages like it certainly broaden the command to us. So I don't want to limit ourselves just to their context, but I think it's important for us to ask the question, like, what about the Romans? What about the original audience? What was their experience, the people that he was writing to? Who exactly were they to subject themselves to, and what was their society like? Well, the world that Jesus was born into was a very scary place. Political corruption, human slavery, and bloodthirsty dictators were everywhere. Uh, remember Herod, who wasn't even the emperor. He was just a small tetrarch, like a governor, who ruled most of Palestine. He issued the order to kill every baby boy under the age of two after Jesus was born. And taxes were beyond unreasonable, 
Uh, the government sanctioned and approved extortion from its tax collectors. If you were not Roman, you were nobody. I mean, you had no say in government, no guarantee to a fair trial. And yet at the same time, it's remarkable to think that in spite of all of that, the Romans still, at least at the time of Christ, held in high regard the freedom of religion. Even the Jews at that time were allowed to retain their priesthood and their temple sacrifices. The Romans protected the Sabbath and all of its dietary and ceremonial laws. They even respected the Jewish wish to keep idols out of the temple, including images of the emperor. The only thing they couldn't keep out were, of course, coins. And that didn't make the Jews happy. They wished that there was some way they could have scrubbed the emperor's face off of those too, but they had to put up with them. There wasn't much they could do about that, but, but there was still an incredibly like, exorbitant amount of respect that was given to the freedom of religion at the time of Christ. And yet, in spite of all that, they were still a conquered people under the heavy hand of a world superpower. So many of them refused to pay taxes, and many of them turned to violence. By the time this letter was written in AD 56, a fanatical group of nationalists called the Zealots were stirring up the political pot in Jerusalem. And things just kept getting hotter and hotter and hotter until eventually a Jewish Holocaust finished the matter in just one short year, AD 70. The temple was destroyed along with 1.1 million men, women, children, and priests. It was a swift bloodbath but the Romans made their point. You can see why so many people were excited when Jesus came onto the scene because these are the things that are boiling under the surface. All of this is just building and gaining more momentum and more steam as time goes on. So when Jesus arrives, they're thinking, here he is. Here's our political hero. Finally, a social reformer worth following. Someone who will fight for our rights and get the economy back on track. But that's not what he did. It's not what he did at all. Instead, he healed, and he preached, and he shared the gospel, and he established the church. Let's turn for a moment to John 18. John 18. If you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall of an important conversation, this is your text. In John 18, Jesus is brought before Pilate, the governor, in verse 28. But the conversation doesn't really pick up until verse 33. Pilate asked him this question, are you the king of the Jews? And this isn't a spiritual question, it's a political question. And Pilate wants to know, are you their political leader? Are you their king? To which Jesus replies with the question, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Where did you hear this? Look at verse 35, you can almost sense Pilate's frustration. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, and get this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus never says, you're right, I'm not a king. Instead, he says, look around. You're not going to find my kingdom here. 
because that's not why I'm here. He will establish his kingdom here on the earth one day when he comes back in the future. But at his first coming, he came to do what we are called to do, and that is bear witness to the truth. Since birth, Jesus was no stranger to political corruption or social injustice, starting with Herod's baby genocide. And yet he did what he could to stay out of all that because he knew he was the king of another kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this earth, not of this world, not here and now. 20 some odd years later, Nero becomes the emperor and Paul writes to the Romans. The zealots have become assassins and political insurrectionists. Nero is demanding worship now and persecuting the Christians in horrifying and grotesque ways. Rome itself has become a hotbed of tolerance, acceptance, and open depravity. But in spite of all that, what does Paul write? What does he tell his readers? He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. When it comes to the world's politics, the command is be subject. Who? Every person. To whom? The governing authorities. But let's be honest. That's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, that's hard for us when we just don't even like our leaders. I mean, can you imagine how hard it was for them, especially for them, when their leaders are actually killing Christians? It had to be incredibly difficult for them to hear that. So we need more than a command. We need motivation. We need a solid reason why. So both Paul and the Holy Spirit, they know that. So they give us five. We have five verses in front of us and five good reasons to submit to our governing authorities. Whether they're doing a good job or not, here are five good reasons to submit. Number one, all governing authorities are instituted by God. Instituted by God. Look at the rest of verse one. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You say, now wait a minute, what about a democratic republic like ours? A country that has the authority to elect our own officials. Are you saying that we have been instituted by God, that our government has been put in place by him? Well, what about communist China or monarchs or isolated tribal groups? And do they all exist because God has personally set them up? Yes. Yes, they do. According to verse 1, every government has been established by God because there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This word instituted means to arrange or to put in place. Paul is saying that God has ultimate power and he sets the board by arranging the pieces and he puts every government in place. In other words, God is the source of all power and all authority. There are no exceptions. This is the entire theme of the book of Daniel, that God is sovereign over the nations, even the biggest and the baddest and the most powerful ones. If you ever wondered why Daniel starts out with memorable Bible stories and then all of a sudden you have these prophecies of nations that don't even exist yet, the theme that ties it all together is that God is sovereign over the nations. And concerning the Lord, Daniel 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. 
and he sets up kings. In other words, God sovereignly arranges the board. He doesn't just gaze down the corridors of time, crosses his fingers, and hopes everything works out. He doesn't sit powerless in the heavens, waiting for someone to pray his hands free. God is actively involved in our activities, and he is the author of all authority. At Solomon's coronation, David stood up and prayed, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth. It is all yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. David got it. There is no one greater, more powerful, more glorious, more victorious, more majestic than the sovereign God who rules over heaven and earth. He arranges the board and he holds all the cards. He removes kings and he sets them up. As we saw earlier during our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 40 verses 22 through 24 say, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And his inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. He says in God's eyes, We are like grasshoppers being led by grass. And all he has to do is open his mouth and breathe for the rulers of the earth, the mighty and the powerful, to be destroyed like that. And he does. He does. Listen, grasshopper. The God who puts politicians in place is the God who hears your prayers. He's the God who intervenes and closes the mouths of lions. He is the God who stands with the faithful in the fiery furnace. He sends plagues and he hardens hearts. He turns shepherds into kings and uses political enemies to save his people. And most importantly, this God has promised you eternal life in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. If you have been born again and adopted into the family of God, then you don't have to wait in line. He has already made you a citizen in heaven. The papers are signed. It's all done. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to wait. You are already there. You are a citizen of heaven. And 50 million years from now, you aren't going to shake your head and wonder why God allowed this or that to happen. But you will remember your part, your responsibility under the sovereignty of God. You won't blame him for the things that happen today. The the wisdom behind his arrangement of the board will be revealed. But you will remember your attitude and your actions as one of God's players here on the earth. So tell me, do you want to be one of those Christians known for their politics Or do you want to be a good citizen, known for your faith? Which is more important, winning an argument or winning a soul for Christ in his kingdom? You've heard the phrase, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I hope none of us are too politically minded to be any heavenly good. 
Friend, ask yourself before you pick up the phone or reply to that comment online, ask yourself first before you reveal your heart by opening your mouth and unloading all of your political frustrations, ask yourself this question, is my attitude Christ-honoring, Christ-glorifying, and Christ-testifying? Am I motivated right now by what I want or by what God has commanded me to do? And what is that, Christian? Be subject to the governing authorities. The fact that they have been put there by God himself as part of his plan for fallen mankind should be enough for us to hit pause and evaluate our attitude. That's the whole point of verse 1. R.C. Sproul helps us put this command into perspective. I love what he wrote. He said, when we disobey lesser authorities, we are disobeying those whose authority rests on Christ and has come from him and through him. The President of the United States could not exercise his office for five minutes apart from the will of the King of Kings. It is the God of Providence who raises kingdoms and brings them down. Every king in the history of the world rules and has ruled only by the providential will of God. And get this, God casts the final ballot in every election. Like it or not, the God of authority has put you under authority, and he commands you to subject yourself to it. We all struggle with submission. Now, I get it. I struggle with, with submission. We all struggle with submission. Nobody likes being told what to do. As children, we fall under the authority of our parents as students, we fall under the authority of our teachers. As U.S. citizens, we fall under the authority of our elected elders or, or leaders. In every case, we are to subject ourselves to them. Why? Because all authority has been instituted by God. All of it. There are no exceptions. That's number one. Number two, all governing authorities are appointed by God, appointed by God. Look at verse two. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This word appointed, it's not the same word that we saw in verse one, that word instituted. It means to separate in one owns interest or to determine or command. So those who resist or rebel against the authorities, whatever their position, are really rebelling against God. Now that's a scary thing because God is the one who has separated those leaders out and he has determined for them to be put in place for his own interest. That is what the text is saying here. Now you say, wait a minute, it's one thing to say that God is sovereign and has established his governmental systems all over the earth, I get that. But now Paul is telling us that he doesn't just create positions of power, he fills those positions with the people he wants? Are you kidding me? What about Herod? What about Nero, Bloody Mary, the Catholic Church, Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, my least favorite president? Are you saying that God is the one who puts these despots into their positions of power? No. No, I'm not saying that. But the Bible is. The Bible does say that. There is no authority except from God. And no one is in authority 
who has not been appointed there by God. None. None. So what about Satan? I mean, he, he has authority, right? Was his authority given to him by God? Where did that come from? Well, yes. Yes, it did. First John five nineteen says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So he most certainly has power. Where did he get it? How did he get it? Did God have a bad day? Did he, did he lose some of his sovereignty, some of his power, some of his control? Did Satan, was Satan right there to pick it up as soon as God wasn't looking? No. He got it from God. In Matthew 4, the devil took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world along with their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And that wasn't a hollow promise. It wasn't a, a phony temptation. That was a real temptation. Satan had the power to do that. He is, after all, the prince of the power of the air. And no one should question Satan's power, but, but where did that power come from? It obviously came from God. Because Satan is not God's equal. He is beneath God in every way. He was created by God. He was kicked out by God. And he was appointed by God to a temporary position of power. Martin Luther put it so well when he said, The devil is not God's adversary. He's his ape. He's his monkey. Again, nothing falls outside of God's sovereignty. Even the devil, behind the worst of the, of the greatest tyrants in human history, even them, even him, they all fall under the sovereignty of God. Verse 2 begins with the word, therefore, because this is the natural logical byproduct of the previous reason. Since God has all authority and he establishes all authority, it stands to reason that those in authority have been put there by God. So here's the result. Here's what that means. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Robert Halden, a Scottish evangelist from the 1800s, wrote, the people of God then ought to consider resistance to the government under which they live as a very awful crime, even as resistance to God himself. Listen, Christian, the last thing you want to do is rebel against your God. He takes rebellion very seriously. He views it as witchcraft. He disciplines it harshly. If you don't believe me, then study the book of Numbers this afternoon. Read it front to cover. God takes rebellion very seriously. And we cannot afford to be cavalier in our response to our authorities. Douglas Moo adds that this is the attitude of one who will not admit that government has a legitimate right to exercise authority over him or her. Again, we should consider Jesus as our perfect model for handling this truth. We just looked briefly at Jesus before Pilate in John 18. Let's flip back there again, but this time to chapter 19, John chapter 19. In John 19, it becomes clear that Pilate wanted to help Jesus out in one way, but Jesus wasn't saying anything to his defense. So let's jump back into the conversation here in chapter 19, starting in verse 10. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority 
to release you and authority to crucify you? Notice Jesus's response to that. Here's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. This is what he has to say, the Son of God himself. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You see, Jesus, the Son of God himself, recognized Pilate's authority as true authority, authority that had been given to him by God, delegated to him by God. Paul had the right to judge Jesus and to render a judgment as he saw fit. I mean, in the end, he made the wrong choice. We know that. He shouldn't have crucified the Son of God. And we also know that in the end, he would still be held responsible before God for his decision. It's still sinful. But the Jews had committed even greater sin because they were sinning against the Scriptures. They were rejecting their Messiah. However, Pilate, he was still sinning as a man of delegated authority because he was condemning an innocent man to death. Here's the thing. Pilate was appointed by God with real authority, and he made a bad choice. He condemned the Son of God to death on a cross. But what does Jesus do? He recognizes the man's delegated authority. He treats him with respect, and he calmly tells him the truth that he was sinning, and that he would one day answer for it. Friends, that is exactly what we are called to do. We don't deny someone's God-appointed authority. We don't disrespect them, no matter how wrong they are. Instead, we tell them the truth, because we're the ones who have it. We have an obligation to speak out against the sins of our authorities and remind them that they are ultimately accountable to the one who gave them their positions of power. But we do it respectfully with the cool confidence of knowing that they have been appointed to their positions by God. Their weapon, as we will see in verse 4, is the sword. Our weapon is the truth. When bad leaders get, get their way, we, we don't fight like other men. To do so would be to resist what God has instituted and appointed. No, we subject ourselves while swinging that powerful sword of truth. That's number two. Number three, all governing authorities are tools of God. Tools of God. They are instituted by God, appointed by God, and they are tools of God. Look at verse three. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, But to bad, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do it as good, and you will receive his approval. This is a proverbial axiom about the necessity of social order. It describes the proper use of delegated authority and the natural consequences of doing the right thing and submitting to that authority. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, that's a very interesting statement coming from Paul, isn't it? If anyone suffered big time for their good conduct by the hands of a, of a wicked government, it was Paul. I mean, he lost his head over it, literally. He suffered the kind of abuse that you and I have only read about. So how could he say that those with good conduct have nothing to fear and those with bad conduct have, have every reason to be afraid? How could he possibly make a statement like that? We can say that because 
All throughout history, God has used even the worst governments to sustain society through a restraint of evil. Now granted, that looks different all throughout history with different societies and different governments and to different degrees. But there's always been a restraining of some sort within every society that hasn't immediately collapsed upon itself. As terrible as the Roman Empire was, especially under Nero, those who committed the worst crimes received the harsher punishment. In the same way, those who benefited society were rewarded with public honors and and civic tributes. It's a known fact. Reward incentivizes and punishment discourages. The means certainly don't justify the ends, but totalitarian governments typically have a lower crime rate than the free world. Murder, rape, and, and theft, and other wicked crimes are so severely punished in some countries they hardly exist at all. And Paul says, look, God has made authority. He's put people in places of authority. And, and if you want things to go well for you, then you need to keep your head down, do the right thing, and earn your authority's favor. Don't attract attention to yourself by behaving badly. It's simple. Christians obey the law. We pay our taxes. We contribute to society. That's what we do. It's what we should do. I promise we'll get into this more a lot next week, but whenever we look at 1 Peter 2, but our witness to outsiders matters. It matters what others think of us. The early Christians, they had a lot going against them. I mean, there were rumors that they were cannibals, that that they drank blood and they ate flesh at these weird rituals called communion or the Lord's Supper. And eventually Nero would blame them for destroying much of Rome. I mean, they did nothing to earn their awful reputation. So they had to go above and beyond and do everything they could to show that they were actually good citizens. Unfortunately, in our society, we flipped everything around to the point where we don't feel like we owe anybody anything. We think that we made the government, and the government is here to serve us, when really God made it, and the government is here to serve him. Friend, when we act as our judges judge, and we die on political hills that are not related to the gospel, it doesn't just make us look bad. It actually invites persecution. Or maybe a better word is retribution. Because our leaders are simply tools, like a hammer and a saw in the hand of God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's number three. All civil authorities, without exception, are tools of God. Number four, all governing authorities are servants of God. Servants of God. Look at verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Bearing the sword is an idiomatic expression for capital punishment. And God has provided institutional government, the threat and the power of death to enforce the law. And this idea goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when God blocked the way back to the garden with an angel and a flaming sword. And that was the first use of physical force as a governing restraint over sinful people. 
And we all remember the rainbow after the flood of Genesis 9. But earlier in the chapter, God initiates the death penalty. In verses 5 and 6, he says, From his fellow men, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Every once in a while, someone will say that, Christians are inconsistent when they oppose abortion but support the death penalty. Not so. According to Genesis 9, both positions are incredibly harmonious because they are driven by the same truth, the sanctity of human life. In God's eyes, human life is so sacred that if you unjustly take the life of another image bearer, you lose the rights and privileges to your own life. It's that simple. So, Think about that. What did Jesus tell Peter on the night of his betrayal? Whenever Peter defended Jesus and he cut off the servant's ear, what did Jesus say to him then? He said, put your sword away because everyone who picks up the sword dies by the sword. Why would he say that? Well, again, Jesus was recognizing that Peter would rightly deserve the death penalty if he killed an innocent man. And that's the power of the sword. And it's given not to us, but to civil authorities. They are the servants of God. You say, okay, all right, Hans, but what about those who abuse their power? I know that I don't need to be afraid of those who bear the sword rightly, but what about those who do bear the sword in vain? Surely I don't have to submit to them, right? Is that my get out of uh, submission card? (laughs) Do I not have to worry about it if if they're abusing their power, if they're not doing what they are called to do under a holy and sovereign and righteous and and perfect God? Well, the answer is yes and no. It all depends on what they are asking you to do. We can best answer that question with reason number five. So let's get right into it. Paul has told us to submit to the governing authorities because all authorities, without exception, are instituted by God, appointed by God, tools of God, and servants of God. Finally, we see that all governing authorities are tests from God. Tests from God. Look at verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The conscience involves our sense of what is right and what is wrong. More importantly, it is that inner mechanism that makes us aware of that what we ought to do is right. Verse 5 is incredible because Paul takes the argument as far as he can go. He has already said, obey the state because if you don't, you're going to get in trouble. Now he says, obey the state because it is the right thing to do and you should want to do the right thing. But again, what if the sword is abused and and evil reigns from on high, as it were? What if my conscience tells me that my leaders have failed and I I shouldn't have to put up with it? What then? Well, our posture is to submit at all times in every way, but there is one exception. There is one exception. As comprehensive and airtight as this worldview of submission is, we are obligated obligated to disobey our leaders if they require us to do something God forbids or forbid us from doing something God requires. And it's so important for us to remember that. 
If our leaders require us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do from doing something that God requires, then and only then are we not only allowed to, we are obligated to disobey them. But that's the only exception. And we will unpack the biblical examples of that principle later on in this series. But know this, we are not commanded to sin in the name of submission. Rather, we submit to the higher power in those instances, and we do obey God rather than men. That's why if we are ever told, you can't preach the gospel, we'll just keep on preaching, and we'll keep preaching from jail. If we're ever told, you have to promote sin or pack it up, then we'll boldly speak against it until they shut us down, and then we'll find some other place to go. But only if our government requires us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God requires, only then can we rebel. Every other instance, the other 99.9% of the time, guess what we're called to do, Christian? We're called to submit. For everything else, poor legislation, high taxes, city ordinances, parking laws, and yes, even outlandish orders during a global pandemic, we have our orders, Christian. And you say, now, now, wait a minute, I disagree with that. I totally, well then friend, please help me. Find the loophole in scripture. Find the government that doesn't fall under God's authority. Find the leader who hasn't been set apart and appointed to their position of leadership. Show us how anarchy is better than the imperfect structure that God uses to resist evil in an evil world. I've looked. Believe me, I've tried, and there is no loophole. It's not here. Uh, what, there, what we do have here is this command to submit, especially when we don't like it. So how do we do this? Uh, how do we submit for the sake of conscience when, when all we see are injustices, wrongs that need to be righted? What is the right thing to do? Well, we don't turn to Jiminy Cricket for advice, and we don't consult the rebelliousness of our own hearts either. Where do we turn, Christian? Come on, you know the answer. We turn to the word of God. And someone has pointed out that the conscience is like a sundial. It's only valuable when the sun is shining on it. In the same way, the conscience must be illuminated by God's word if it is going to tell the right time. One of the greatest dangers of the human heart, of any heart, but especially the, the Christian heart, is pride. Pride. It is far too easy for us to assume that we alone have the right answers when we don't. It is far too easy for us to assume that our consciences are good, that we have a sensitive conscience that, that is more in tune with the Spirit of Christ than, say, that person over there or that person over there. But friends, apart from the clear teachings of Scripture, what do we have in our hearts? What does come out over and over and over again? It's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition rules. When Peter says, submit for the sake of conscience, he's speaking to you, Christian, as you submit ultimately to the word of God. To quote R.C. Sproul again, he says, if magistrates are oppressive, if we disagree radically with them, we are still to render obedience because our consciences are held captive by the word of God. 
Christian, consider this a test by God himself. How are your hearts doing? How are your hearts revealing themselves? Especially when we refuse to submit and when we insist on our own way, what does that do for our witness? How are we submitting to the will of God? How are we in alignment with scripture and with what we are clearly commanded to do here as pilgrims, aliens, strangers, and exiles? On a particularly dark and foggy night, the captain of a ship peered into the gloom and he saw some faint lights flickering in the distance. Quickly, he told his signalman, go send the message, alter your course 10 degrees north, or sorry, 10 degrees south. Almost immediately, the message returned and, and, and it was received saying, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was furious. How dare they ignore his command and tell him what to do? So he sent a second message, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another message came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. By now the captain was completely beside himself with rage. So he sent a third and final message, knowing that it would carry a fearful punch. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. To which the reply came, alter your, degree, or alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. Church, as those with the truth in this dark world, it might seem absurd for us to alter our course or subject ourselves to governing authorities. We can tell them 10 degrees south all we want till we're blue in the face, but they are firmly planted on the rock of God's authority. When we rebel against them, we are fighting against what God has established. Our money says in God we trust, but let's be honest. Our country doesn't trust in God. We do. We do. He is the authority above all authorities. If a civil magistrate picks up the sword to promote evil, they will be judged by God. It is the Lord who raises up nations and tears them down. He appoints kings and he uses the wickedness of men's heart to his own advantage. According to God's word, God's patriots are the ones who live quiet and godly lives who have their citizenship in perspective. One last question before we close, and that is what if religious persecution really does come? Uh, what do we do then? How do we respond? Well, let's go ahead and flip one page over to the left to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Remember, Paul didn't write this letter with chapters and verses, so let's look at his logical flow of thought as it leads us to our text. What if religious persecution shows up tomorrow? Look at what he says here, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the very next sentence, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Pilgrims, aliens, strangers, exiles. Let's not forget who's in charge. With eternity in mind, let's check our attitudes at the door. And let's do everything our king has called us to do. In God we trust.